8: Good morning and welcome to CounterPoints. We've got a great show today, don't we?
7: We sure do. We have uh, the new head of the Freedom Caucus here at the end of the show, Representative Bob Good of Virginia. We have lots of questions for him going into the new year about all the leverage they've got in Congress in the new year. Also, Donald Trump, we're going to start right away with the ruling out of Colorado last night. He's off the ballot. For now, Indeed. the Supreme Court's reviewing it. I guess technically he's not until the Supreme Court review, uh, but this is a huge case.
8: And we've got a packed show, so there are a couple things we didn't get a chance to put into the show but that we wanted to make sure you guys knew about. First of all, huge news on the COVID origin front, mm-hmm. which we've been tracking for years now. Yeah. Uh, basically, U.S. Right to Know, great uh, an Emily Kopp uh, organization uh, that we've had on the show multiple times got uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, a number of... Uh, documents from the DEFUSE grant. You can just go look up look up their story. But basically what they found is that the uh, folks who were trying, EcoHealth Alliance was trying to get money to do uh, risky work in Wuhan, wrote into its Word doc, uh, you know, let's not actually tell the Defense Department that we're going to be doing this risky work at a BSL-2 lab in Wuhan. Right. Because they will, quote, freak out. Yeah. So, now they ended up not getting the, uh, that money, but people believe, you know, they, they have not gotten money before and still been able to do the research. It's not as if not getting money means nobody can do any, any lab work. Right. Uh, and so the, the level of deception has raised people's uh, suspicion from, you know, who, who were already fairly confident that Wuhan was the source up to, you know, close to 99.99% certainty at this point.
7: Right. Yeah. And that's how packed the show is. It's just a, a huge story. We wanted to make sure we mentioned yeah. that.
8: And one quick win uh, for workers. I don't know if you guys are following. There was there's been an almost two week long strike uh, of UPS workers mm-hmm. out at the kind of uh, sorry, DHL workers mm-hmm. um, at the airport in Cincinnati, Kentucky, which is their main hub. And uh, I interviewed some of these workers like a year ago for my podcast. They they, they organized their union from scratch you know, with the Teamsters fought over a contract, and then went on strike and won. Mm. Like, just an incredible victory. This is the kind of thing that unions in the past would spend millions of dollars trying to organize and fail. Uh, Not only did they organize the union, uh, they now have a tentative deal. Um, Just an incredible win. We're looking at maybe 1,200, 1,500 workers, but it really sets sets the tone um, for the Teamsters after their big UPS win.
7: sets the tone and confirms the tone of the labor movement, for sure. Absolutely. We also have news out of Israel uh, that we're going to get to right after we talk about the decision in the Trump court case in Colorado. Ryan's uh, coverage of Imran Khan and Pakistan is going to continue. There's an update in the story. The State Department is uh, just very pleased to have Ryan at the (laughs) briefing. So he got uh, a question with uh, Matt Miller about that and has updates to the story lots of names set to come out uh, by January 1st from Jeffrey Epstein. A lot of people sweating. Yeah, a lot of people are sweating right now. So we'll see if that actually happens. Uh, But that is news that we're going to get to. About 200 names are set to be released from Epstein's files, basically, by January 1st. Uh, Tucker went in on Ron DeSantis. uh, He was on Tim Pool's show. Ron
8: DeSantis cannot catch a break.
7: Can't catch a break. Mm, poor guy. No, that's Tell you right. what Well, let's start with Donald Trump, Ryan. And this is a, a good point also to remind everyone, subscribe to Breaking Points. Uh, make sure you have so that it's subscription. a subscription. So your discount, right? Uh, th- there is a holiday discount, but yeah. make sure also that you just subscribe in general so you can get the show early, get it to uh, your inbox, and you can, for CounterPoints, see the full show uninterrupted. Yeah. So uh, make sure to subscribe because we're going to have a lot to cover in the next year.
8: And we might do a Friday show.
7: We might. We might. We we meant to tease that like months ago.
8: We're thinking about it.
7: Here's our teaser. Yeah. Uh, But let's get to Subscribe and we'll do it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, Let's get to the Trump news, though, Ryan, because the Colorado Supreme Court, this is from the Associated Press, they declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House under the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause. So that's part of the 14th (laughs) Amendment and removed him from the presidential primary ballot. The AP continues to say that sets up a likely showdown in the nation's highest court to decide whether the front runner for the GOP nomination can remain in the race. It is from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, that's It's a post-Civil War insurrection clause. It's what it sounds like, basically. And they write, a majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And that was a 4-3 decision. It's about his role, obviously, on January 6th. Now, Trump, interestingly enough, Ryan, has not been charged with insurrection. Jack Smith could have charged Donald Trump with insurrection. He hasn't actually been charged with insurrection, but in the 14th Amendment, you can also be disqualified for aiding or giving comfort to anybody who's partaking in an insurrection. Again, though, it's a strange circumstance for sure. And four three right. in Colorado. Right,
8: because in the Civil War, it was very clear yes. if you participated <laughs> in a rebellion yes. or an insurrection. Yeah. Like you, no mystery. You, you wore a uniform, you you know, you fought the you fought the union and the and the fourteenth amendment had a provision that said that if two thirds of Congress, you know, uh, did uh, Undid your disqualification, then you could come back into office, and that's how many. Right. That's how so many Confederates were allowed back into Washington. Is it like all right, fine, come on back. You, right. we'll, we'll let we'll let you back in. Uh, so yeah, my my take on on this is that for one, liberals just keep looking for a manager. Mm-hmm. Like they they want somebody that they can call that's going to fix this situation.
7: That's so good. Like in
8: 2016, after he got elected, at first it was the faithless electors. They mm-hmm. were going to they were going to find these members of the electoral college who they could persuade to just change their votes and because of Russia or because of what or whatever else and they would elect Hillary Clinton that way you know afterwards there was you know Bob Mueller was the manager that they were going to call in on this one now to, now to me if you want to use raw political power you use it like January 6th that night you know after after Pence certifies you impeach Trump get him out within a week. And then President Pence at that point (laughs) launches a DOJ investigation of him, locks him up. And then a President Biden pursues the prosecution. Like you want to use political power, like use it.
7: Don't half-ass it.
8: Don't half-ass it. Don't don't do this. Well, first they they go after him over a paperwork thing with a payoff to Stormy Daniels. Uh, Then there's the, the classified documents thing. Uh, and then eventually this, like, Elliot Ness wannabe comes in with his, with his you know, big case mm-hmm. that doesn't even bring insurrection. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, bring insurrection, lock the guy up, and then disqualify him. Like, that's your option. Or you beat him at the ballot box. Like, I, I think this middle ground where they're kind of letting him hang out for four years, ro- roaming the streets of, mm-hmm. Coral, of Coral Gables or, or Palm Beach or wherever <laughs> he is, uh, and then with him 10 points up in the polls— saying they're going to disqualify him I think uh is is kind of ugly like just 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 beat him one way or the other but yeah. not like this
7: See that's interesting yeah because Trump supporters are already drawing parallels with banana republics third world countries they're using the term election interference and I think you know actually to your point Ryan there's it, it, there's something about this that gives them uh, some real ammunition when they're ma- having those, uh, making those arguments because, again, this is all happening in the shadow of Donald Trump running against Hillary Clinton, James Comey deciding not to go after Hillary Clinton, and I'm with you that uh, you know, And Crystal and I have talked about this before, too. Like, Lock them all up. <laughs> but, if, but if you're not locking them all up, then definitely don't lock one up because uh, that is going to foment another January 6th. I mean, there's, no. that's exactly what led to January 6th. And that's not to say Donald Trump was blameless in any of that. Of course, we don't think that. Um, this is a quote in the AP article uh, from a Notre Dame law professor. He says, I think it may embolden other state courts or secretaries to act now that the bandage has been ripped off. This is a major threat to Trump's candidacy." Uh, And it is. And you can tell that by uh, some of the reactions from Trump World because there are dozens of these cases in different courts that have been brought by mostly left of center legal groups that are kind of testing this 14th Amendment case out to see what they can do. interesting way these cases have actually been pushed off in certain areas, uh, certain places where they're being tried, is that it doesn't mention presidents. It mentions elected officials uh, can be taken off the ballot for engaging in insurrection.
8: Right, but it does say, like, if you're a civil officer election, like, it's it's included within. But yeah, I mean, you could make an argument.
7: And they have successfully in different cases. I mean, that's part of the problem with this. I think it,
8: it didn't contemplate the, the, the statute didn't contemplate that the president would lead the insurrection because the president is the head of the government that's being insurrected against. So it's, it's the only time that somebody could do that would be during the lame duck session.
7: So it's a question of whether you're included as a, quote, officer of the United States. And that's the language. Kind of is. It is, right? It, well, you'd think, right. But then there, you're getting into the legalese over how it's been interpreted in the past. And if that's what is hinging on whether or not Donald Trump is in the ballot and how many states, to your point, it's like whole asset, <laughs> the whole yeah. half-assing where we're having legalese over whether or not this man who's leading the presidential race is allowed to be in the ballot. Now, he lost Colorado by double digits, by the way. So it's not Colorado. That's right. the important question here.
8: It used it's, to be a swing state. It's funny how.
7: Yeah. No Republicans changed. won since 2004. Um, it, it, but so all that is to say, this is going to likely inform how other people approach these cases going forward. And the Supreme Court is set to rule on this. So this this ruling is immediately being reviewed by the Supreme Court. I believe it's actually not even technically uh, valid that it's not enacted until the right, Supreme they're leaving Court him, right, they're leaving it. Right, they're leaving them on the
8: ballot until the Supreme Court weighs in, basically.
7: Right, on the last possible day, right? It's like January 5th. They have to print their ballots on January 5th, right. so the pre- Supreme Court has to weigh in by January 4th.
8: Right. Although if they do weigh in and they say they're going to uh, give an answer, the Colorado Supreme Court says that they'll stay it until the Supreme Court makes an answer. Let's get uh, Donald Trump's response That's it. Uh, to this.
9: It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means necessary. They're willing to violate the US constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy, it's a threat. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls.
8: I mean, the point on like undermining democracy and a threat to democracy is a reasonable one. We're going to talk later about uh, the situation in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I'm in the press room at the State Department and, you know, I want to hammer uh, Matt Miller, the State Department spokesperson, about the fact that the U.S. is claiming that they want free and fair elections in Pakistan, yet the, <laughs> the leading opposition leader, former prime minister, most popular politician in the country, is in jail and being prosecuted by the military-backed government. It's much harder to make that land for liberals when they're like, yeah, so.
7: The U.S.-backed military-backed government. Right.
8: They're like, "Yes, yeah, so. So yeah, we're right. doing that with Trump. Right. And, and we're a democracy, so therefore, that's fine. And so around the world, you're just going to have— uh, people being like, "All right, well, we were already, you know, we already felt like we had a green light. Now we've got a raging green light to yeah. just like log up whoever we want. Yeah, and be yeah. like, no, it's like, hey, uh, nobody's above the law."
7: And if this is truly a domino that falls, then it does feel really like it is a third world country thing. And I mean, this, our Supreme Court right now, there's questions as to whether Clarence Thomas is going to have to recuse himself because obviously Ginny Thomas was involved in the protests and in, in or helping organize the protests, not the riot. Obviously, the protests turned into a riot on January 6th. But uh, that's a huge question going forward. The Supreme Court is, I mean, I think we know, all know where the Supreme Court's going to land uh, based right, on, the let makeup him on the, ballot, of the Supreme right? Court. Yes, I, I would have I would imagine. Um, That said, uh, let's hear also though this clip from Laura Ingram's show last night, which is actually really interesting as it pertains to this case and how it'll affect the future going forward.
6: Seeing what happened in Colorado tonight, Laura, makes me think, except we believe in democracy Mm -hmm. in Texas, maybe we should take Joe Biden off the ballot in
9: Texas for allowing 8 million people to cross the border since he's been president, uh,
6: disrupting our state.
7: So that's Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick. And Ryan, the question of whether this is a domino that starts falling that is going to be we've seen this like we, we've seen this how uh, Republicans retaliated in the House of Representatives after Nancy Pelosi didn't let them pick who would sit on the January 6 committee. Uh, we've seen how Republicans have acted and said we need to now fight fire with fire. Um, that's the the sort of tactical approach going forward. And if you don't do that, then you know you're you're not on our team anymore, basically. That's and,
8: fighting fire with fire. And, and speaking of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was not on a single ballot in the South. So when, when you are so far apart mm. uh, that you're not hmm. even willing to put your kind of opponents on the ballot, you've gotten to a place that's uh, going to get violent. And that's what I mean by sorting things out democratically yeah. rather than using raw force. Yeah. Because there are two ways that you can you know, solve political disagreements you know, right. through, through politics or through war. Yeah, uh, and so if you can't, if you can't do it through politics, you're gonna you're gonna end up getting war. But like I said, there is an exception. You pull a coup and you fail, everybody understands that is a threat to democracy. You get locked up, but you have to do it right away.
7: Like you have I, to I, lock I, up right away yourself. Yeah,
8: you just you just cannot let let like, just let him sit there for four years and then Merrick Garland, you know, not wanting to do it, and then eventually like appointing a special counsel who then who then moves on it like.
7: Who then it, moves on it while delaying a Hunter Biden case. I mean, it's just such a disaster <laughs> for
8: yeah, the Biden administration. If it's that serious of a, th- a threat, you got to move on it. Um, so it was, what, a 4-3 to ruling yeah. in the Colorado Supreme Court. Somebody flagged a really interesting point uh, that uh, all of the Ivy League appointees, they're all Democrats, mm-hmm. but all of the Ivy League appointees voted to disqualify <laughs> Trump and all the Denver Law School uh, appointees voted to allow him on.
0: The realignment. The
8: ballot. Yeah, so—
7: Let's move on uh, to news out of the Middle East, Ryan. uh, Some big updates just yesterday. Uh, You actually drove some of the news yesterday. I think we have a clip of you (laughs) in the State Department briefing uh, right now that we can start with.
8: Yeah, this this uh, is—actually, I guess the question sets it up itself. Yeah, so we can roll a clip in the State Department. Pope Francis said recently, he said, quote, Unarmed civilians are subjected to bombings and shootings, and this even happened inside the parish complex of the Holy Family where there are no terrorists but families, children, sick and disabled people, nuns. Someone says it's terrorism, it's war. Yes, it's war, it's terrorism, unquote. So first, is, is the Pope wrong about this? And is the U.S. concerned about its standing in, among the international community if the Pope is willing to describe what Israel is doing as terrorism? So
6: one of the things that we have made clear to Israel from the outset is that we do not want to see uh, churches, mosques, schools, hospitals, attacked. Um, in the secretary's last trip, he had a very candid conversation with the Israeli government about the importance of protecting those civilian sites and ensuring that they are on deconfliction um, uh, uh, deconfliction lists so they are not targeted. I will say with respect to uh, this particular incident that you raised, we raised this with directly with the Israeli government and asked uh, tough questions about it, uh, and we will continue to do so.
7: Where are the answers?
6: Yeah, tough questions.
8: It raises the question of how weak is the United States here? Like, this, if if, the, if they're serious that they genuinely don't want Israel bombing churches, mosques, schools, and hospitals, and Israel continues to target churches, uh, schools, hospitals, and mosques, what does that say? Uh, either so, there, one of two things, right? Like, either the U.S. has no leverage over Israel uh, and is like the weakest. Uh, superpower that's ever existed uh, fa- face of the earth. <laughs> Puppet master, they can't find the strings. Um, or it's actively supportive of it and just saying so otherwise in public.
7: This particular incident is a... V- I mean, we have no answers to your point about them, y- your point to Matt Miller. He's yeah. saying, you know, we've raised this issue and asked, quote, tough questions, and we'll continue to, you mm-hmm. know, keep you updated on it. I yeah. want to know what Israel told them because this is a really continues to be a really strange situation yeah. that's starting to remind me of the Shereen Abu Akla incident, right. obviously tragedy, uh, a couple of years ago. It was, it was like a year and mm-hmm. a half ago at this point where the Israeli government said, we absolutely did not do this, or the IDF said, we absolutely did not do this. They came out and said, you know, it's this is not how we operate and it eventually turned out that's what happened. Yeah, it is what because happened. The evidence right. so far is suggesting uh, that it is what happened, but typically when you get a flat denial from, I'm not just talking about Israel, but any government, just absolutely no, right. that means you, you don't well, usually take go to series, the so mat, go down right. the, right, when you're going on the record, maybe you take seriously that denial as opposed to just like, oh, we'll review it, whatever it is, yeah. usually you take that more seriously than you know someone brushing the question off. Uh, the evidence here continues to suggest that a mother and a daughter were sniped basically yeah. when they left a the church.
8: And according to the church officials there, uh, one of the women was uh was shot and killed. Uh the other women the other woman was trying to, you know, bring her mm-hmm. uh, into safety inside the church and, and was then herself shot. And that seven other people were wounded who were then trying to help those two women who were shot. They also say that an Israeli Israeli tank uh shelled the church compound uh Blew up their generator, so now they're they're with right. they're without power, and also destroyed a, a kind of side complex where 54 disabled people mm-hmm. were were uh, finding refuge, and by destroying by destroying the generator and their breathing machines and and making them adding them to the two million displaced persons have uh, put their put their lives at at very serious risk because they're the kinds of people that cannot you know live without electricity, and so. Israel would in, it would try to claim, like they did with Srin Abu Akleh, well, this was Palestinians that that shot at them, and
7: we don't or, target journalists, and we
8: don't target journalists or whatever. Uh, in in this case, the claim that like Hamas may have done this for some weird reason uh, is undermined by the fact that there's also like IDF tanks there shelling the church because like Hamas doesn't have tanks.
7: Well, and didn't there wasn't the IDF's initial response or somebody in the Israeli, Israeli government's initial response was to say we were operating there against Hamas. So, like sure. they said, yeah. right? They conceded right away that they were operating in the area against Hamas. Right.
8: right, and so their public responses have been uh, deplorable. So let's let's play a couple of those. Let's let's roll this one right here.
6: You heard our member of parliament, uh Moran. There, her relatives, six of them, targeted by Israeli army snipers in a church compound in Gaza. What on earth is going on? Well, that's the question to later, not to me. I, I think that uh, I can only say that we as the Jewish people are used to blood libels. So to hear that Israeli snipers are targeting women on purpose and not letting them leave the church uh, is something that reminds me usually of the atmosphere in the Middle Ages before another holiday. Maybe are you it, saying uh, it's Masai, a lie? Are you saying it didn't happen? This is a flat lie, absolutely.
8: All right, so that's one approach to say that, well, it's actually blood libel and anti-Semitism.
7: Literally to ask yeah. questions.
8: To ask questions to about ask it. To ask the question about it, yeah. Uh, and here's the other approach. Believe it or not, perhaps even worse uh, than that one.
5: Why is it necessary, it would, is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church?
4: I don't. I saw the reports this morning. Um, the church, there are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report is. Well, is, is, is there's talking a, there's about. a
5: Catholic church in there, isn't there, that is... Yeah, unfortunately
4: ins- there are no Christians because they were dry, dro- driven, driven out by... Well, there
5: some are, us. respectfully, uh, there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians.
4: Well, I don't and know, know what you're telling happened. Me I don't wrong. know who was attacked. I didn't see the report.
5: Oh, didn't see the report. <laughs>
8: if, if people missed that, started out, yeah, I saw that report, there's no Christians. Oh, no, Sorry. I didn't see the report. I feel like she's the mayor. Deputy mayor of Jerusalem. Deputy mayor of Jerusalem. It, who goes on TV a decent amount. If we're going to be lied to, can we get some better liars? Like, don't contradict yourself within a span of, uh, of, of 32 seconds. But there's other, another interesting dynamic unfolding here. In both of those clips, the presenter spoke with uh, probably the same MP in, in Britain who has Christian family who was there. Yes. And so heard directly from the family members. The family members told the MP. Uh, the MP told the presenter, "This is a chain of trust, mm-hmm. so that when they are then confronting Israeli officials, like you're lying to me because I tr- I have heard from people that I trust that that X happened, and you know there are, there are something like 1,500, slightly fewer, uh, kind of quote unquote registered Christians yes. in Gaza, which yeah. is it's bizarre, uh, yeah. and it raises questions about what Israel's doing with." Gaza, when there are registered Christians, like why? Why are they? Why is there a list? Um, and wh- why is there a registry that Israel has access to? Uh, but s- setting that aside, the rest, uh, for the most part, are Muslims and don't have the same connections, you know, with American presenters or British presenters, and so then aren't able to kind of get their story out in the same way. The video evidence has been s- substituting, you know, for that direct kind of. Uh, trust that people have, but it—you can see that it's basically impossible for Israel to can to confront people when they have the trust of mm-hmm. uh, the people that that are witnessing these crimes. What did you make of the of this uh, really unimpressive kind of response there?
7: Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think it, it is to your point. You use the word deplorable. I, I listen. I, I get the sensitivities um, on behalf of Israelis right now, uh, but to immediately pivot to blood libel when people are asking questions about a mother and a right. daughter being sniped outside of a church, and not unreasonable questions, by the way. People with reasonable questions that aren't on the ground that are hearing things from, for example, an MP, a member of Parliament,
8: and who top said... And church officials. Right. Including the Pope.
7: The, the, literally <laughs> the Vatican's news website. And, yeah. and, and, like, listen, I'm not Catholic. I don't put a whole lot of credence in what this Pope says. Ca- uh, you Ca- might be shocked some, to learn. The Catholic
8: Church <laughs> does not have the Best record throughout history, but yes. uh, uh, right. on, on the question of whether or not Catholics were massacred inside their church, I'm gonna I'm a lean in their direction.
7: So they have this mother and daughter, This, and again, you have an MP saying that this, based on family that's in the area, that this is what happened. You have the Vatican saying that this is what happened. You have the Israelis saying a couple of different things about what might have actually happened you cannot immediately pivot to that's bigotry for asking questions you, you can't and the deputy mayor of jerusalem is absolutely correct that there are very few christians she said no she said there's no churches in gaza there's mm, no christians Muslims in gaza all out. right she's trying to make a point and it's true that the christian population has been decimated uh, the historic christian population there has been decimated there are some uh, Beautiful, uh, very old Christian churches in that area that uh, were actually hit. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. very first places to be hit, actually, in the war was when Justin uh, Amash's
8: relatives were killed.
7: Right, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and so, it's true. Like two thirds of the Christian population of Gaza has basically been like fled uh, or killed in recent years. So there are about a thousand left. A uh, thousand is not no. That's a right. lot, a lot of people, and that's uh, you know like tight knit church communities. So uh, preparing for the, Christmas. Preparing yeah. for Christmas, and they have mishandled. Like this is this is a, a really. Really bad uh, strategy, PR strategy on their behalf, and that's not even to get into whatever military strategy may have led to this, uh, because again, like we don't have all the answers. I eagerly await Matt Miller, uh, you know, being pressed right. and, and giving us the answers. He says he's asked tough questions, and that the State Department has asked tough questions. I'm I'm eager to hear that because this uh, sort of tension between Israel saying precision and then Israel saying parking lot. The precision and parking lot tension is a really, like, obviously a huge question.
8: Yeah, and the whole we would never do such a thing defense uh, doesn't fly today because of what happened with the three Israeli hostages just days ago, where the IDF we know used snipers um, to kill uh, three men, uh, Israeli men, who had their shirts off to show they had no explosives and were waving a white flag. Because we know that as a a fact. And so this, like, we would never do such a thing using snipers doesn't land.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
8: I think that is what is now driving Israel kind of back to the negotiating table, if we can put up this, uh, this Axios scoop. So Israel offers Hamas one-week pause. Its minimum one-week pause could be extended in fighting as part of a new hostage deal. So uh, Israel had been demanding in Warsaw it, in talks that have been uh, mediated by Qatar that the only way that they're going to agree to a ceasefire is if Hamas lays down all of its arms and turns over, you know, all of its, all of its top officials. And Hamas is like, well, well that's not, we're not going to do that. Uh, and the last um, hostage deal broke down. Uh, Hamas was claiming that Israel wasn't abiding by it. Israel claimed that Hamas stopped, you know, releasing hostages. Uh, Hamas said all of the remaining women that they had in, in their, captivity uh, were IDF soldiers, Mm. and so uh, therefore they didn't fit under the kind of rubric of the deal that they were going to release kind of women and children and the elderly. So uh, this this new deal that's being uh, worked out now would see, what, some 60 or so um, hostages uh, released, uh, people who are, uh, you know, women, children, um, uh, sick, uh, you know, like elderly, otherwise, um, facing serious health complications, uh, and you know some of those could be IDF, I suppose, because they don't really specify. Yeah. Um, and in exchange, Israel would release um, some Palestinians who were convicted of like significant offenses, who are themselves in you know facing like dire health complications or old age, uh, and so that's the that's the current uh, deal being uh, being discussed right now. Do you think do you think we're going to see something over the next couple days that starts to see more hostages released?
7: Yeah, I think we will, um, especially because, to your point, there's a lot of pressure right now on Netanyahu. Netanyahu met again with families mm-hmm. of hostages yesterday and had to cap the fa- number of families at, I think, 15. And there was a lot of discontent, actually, about people being left off the list. And the hostages themselves, we were just talking about the sort of precision versus parking lot dynamic, uh, have spoken to that and have said, you were bombing us. The you know, hostages that have been returned have said, we were being bombed, uh, you say you know what you're doing, but we constantly felt like we were under threat of death, basically. So that's obviously huge pressures that puts huge pressures on Netanyahu's government to uh, bring hostages home. Um, and obviously that's that, that's no surprise that there's pressure on him to bring the hostages home, but it's more and more, uh, more and more pressure that as you continue to wage this campaign, we also need the progress in terms of, you know, there's still eight Americans being held hostage. It's it's crazy, I think, how the hostages have gotten lost in the conversations about this war, that, like, this is basically the the number one bargaining chip that Hamas sort of disgustingly Used uh, during its invasion, its incursion on October 7th, was the hostages. And these are people who are just languishing um, in tunnels, in horrifying situations that could lead to their death at the hands of their own. Military, their own government, as we saw with three people last week, uh, and eight Americans. I mean, it just—it feels like it gets lost in those headlines every single day. That eight Americans, among many other hostages, are still being held in uh, these these terrible conditions, and that's the top objective. It should yeah. absolutely be the top objective uh, every single day, uh, so that we can, you know, come to the table and and get closer to to peace. Um, so there's just a ton of pressure. I think, on, on Netanyahu to, to make these deals.
8: Yeah, now, in there's pressure uh, from the other side to keep the war going. So if people remember back in the very early stages of this war, uh, Finance Minister uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who's one of the like, leading like hard-right hard figures in, in the cabinet, in a cabinet meeting said, and this quote has become uh, notorious, he said, we have to be cruel now and not to think too much about the hostages over much. Uh, we have to be cruel now and not to think too much about the hostages in Gaza. It's time for action. Mm-hmm. And there has been, and uh, Ben Gavir at the time uh, of, of the last pause said, you know, if you don't start this war up again, I'm going to bring the government down. So there's this pressure on the other side. It, it is not lost on the far right inside uh, the cabinet that a lot of these hostages are have been peace activists in the past. These are kind of internal political Adversaries of of the of the far right government in Israel, and as they've been getting released, they have been potent critics of that government. And so, so for people like Smotrich, they're like, their mission is to just completely level Gaza, yeah. and the hostages who are whose mission is not whose mission is to survive and get out, um, but also have ha, are, are among the kind of remaining faction in Israel that have um, a, a real kind of solidarity uh, with, with kind of peace activists around the world, trying to like resolve this conflict in a peaceful way rather than violently, um, they're, they're not helpful um, when they get out on the public stage. And you've, and you've seen a lot of damaging meetings with Netanyahu, rallies that the, that the released hostages have been able to have the families of the hostages calling on Netanyahu to stop the bombing and let them out.
7: And it's impossible to imagine coming to a peace to, to using peace to come to you know some type of settlement with Hamas. But the big question going forward is does Anything that's happen, that does anything that's happening right now in Gaza make Israel safer in the, right. the near term? And that's a, a completely reasonable point to raise. But Netanyahu is under pressure uh, from, to your point, from Smotrich, ben, Smotrich and Ben Gvir uh, right now in those factions of his government. He's under pressure from the United States government in a different direction. That's saying, you know, we would, our preference is that this is this invasion is drawn down by the new year and these are all I think uh, variables that will contribute to uh, not just a seven day pause but potentially something longer in the interest of getting hostages back and shifting uh, to something that is is much clearly more of a precision operation in Gaza
8: right yeah and then the numbers that are being uh, circulated among humanitarian relief activists so Ahmed Khan who's a hu- who's d- uh, done work there uh, humanitarian relief activist you know said to me they're, they're I think 26,667 killed and missing mm. um, was there almost 20,000 killed who've arrived in hospitals, but Gaza is rubble. And underneath that rubble, you know, could be uh, six, six six, seven thousand 7,000 uh, bodies or more. Like we're, and we're talking about, you know, 8,000 children, 14,000 women and children, um, three, uh, you know, 90, how many journalists at this point? Um, al- almost 100 journalists, 90 schools and universities completely destroyed, 112 mosques completely destroyed, um, 200 mosques partially destroyed, three churches targeted and destroyed, um, 2 million people roughly, this, at this point, displaced.
7: Well, and that's why it's difficult for our government, for the Israeli government, to say we. it is not our goal to target uh, churches, hospitals, or we've uh, made it very clear to the Israeli government that we don't want them targeting churches and hospitals, but then at the same time to make the case, which is true, by the way, that these are centers of military operation, that, you know, these are places where people are conducting military operations. Gaza, Gaza is small. Uh, it's... Compact. It's highly concentrated. Uh, So, of course, there's overlap in these cases. And that's where I think it it gets difficult to uh, continue to say one thing and to have the sort of war play out in the
0: court of public opinion. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah.
2: How'd we do today? We did good. Good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Ryan, you were in the, we we just mentioned in the previous block that you were at the State Department briefing and you got more than one question in. You started to ask about Pakistan as well, which you've been covering fantastically with your colleague Murtaza Hussain at, Hussein mm-hmm. at the intercept. Um, and you have more to the story.
8: Yeah, let's keep people updated on this uh, wild story that's unfolding in Pakistan. So you, people may remember back in August, uh, Murtaza and I reported on a, a what's called a cipher, basically a diplomatic cable mm-hmm. uh, bet- uh, that, that arrived uh, in Islamabad, was sent from Washington by the, amb- the Pakistan's ambassador there, which described a meeting that took place just after the Ukrainian, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, in which the, the United States State Department official told Pakistan that Imran Khan, the current prime minister, uh, you know, basically had to go because of his neutrality. Aggressive neutrality was their phrase uh, in, in the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine and that if Imran Khan was ousted in a vote of no confidence that quote unquote all would be forgiven. Between the United States and Pakistan,
7: and we wanted to right. manufacture weapons. And we
8: wanted Pakistan. to ma- and, and later it turns out that uh, Pakistan then began producing an enormous amount of uh, you know, low grade shells mm-hmm. uh, for for the conflict uh, in Ukraine. Uh, he was ousted as part of as part of this no confidence vote that was encouraged uh, by the State Department. And so uh, now what we can uh, report uh, is that, and you can put this element up here. Just a couple days after our story, uh, the Foreign Office asked the ISI, which is basically Pakistan's uh, CIA, that if the release of a cipher publicly, as happened in our in our story, would compromise their encryption. System mm. you know it, it, whether it would enable what's called a plain text attack basically a plain text attack would be like a Rosetta stone <laughs> type thing like you've got <laughs> the encrypted version over here and then you've got the plain text version here you put them next to each other and you can say oh mm-hmm. this is how, we can now crack their encryption and so the NSA or Russia or China or whoever can now bust into Pakistan's um, uh, encryption system so they have since jailed Imran Khan. Um, they claim that like, he was the source of, of this leak or they, they, they vaguely insinuate that he was a source. He absolutely was not the source. We know who the source was, was not him. Uh, but the main thrust of their charge is that it was, it was a damaging leak uh, to Pakistan's national security because it enabled uh, this uh, encryption undermining system. Uh, the document that we obtained from the ISI is a response to the foreign office which asked the question, is our system undermined? And the answer was unequivocally no. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very rare that you, you get this firm of a rejection. And what they say is that you would need more plain text than ex- that then could be even stored in all of the storage that exists around the country. And also you would need like the, the key, and there are a lot of other technical reasons. They said the system is built with the expectation that sometimes the, the plain text of a document will leak and that the adversary will have both the plain text and, uh, and the encrypted text. And so this is the thrust of Imran Khan's, the case against Imran Khan. And the ISI knows it to be completely false, yet the trial uh, is ongoing anyway. Meanwhile, the Pakistani media is being completely banned mm. from discussing the trial. Like it's, Not only is it being held in secret, but they're not supposed to even talk about it. And so his party did something interesting on Sunday. They held a virtual rally, uh, and they used AI hmm. to take notes that he had sent from prison and produced a speech using his using AI to create his voice. They actually did a good job. Mm-hmm. Like unlike the kind of uh, well Indian intelligence that that we played a little while ago. Uh, oh, during uh, Murtaza's yeah, voice. trying to, to yeah, pretend yeah. like, come on, you can't do Murtaza's voice. He's a podcast really host. <laughs> it was really bad. It was so bad. So they did a good. They 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 did a really good job. Very few people were able to attend though, uh, because the Pakistani government, in preparation for the rally, the virtual rally, throttled the entire country's internet. Mm. Social took down basically took down social media and the internet, like mm-hmm. made it impossible for people to get on. Now I, I know some people. Kind of uh, used VPNs and otherwise kind of got around it. Uh, but they shut down the internet so that they could block the opposition party from having a rally, uh, a virtual rally, rally, a rally that has to be virtual because he's in jail on trumped up charges. That gets us to uh, the State Department, which has repeatedly insisted that there need to be free and fair elections. So I asked, do these conditions count? Under that so here let 's play uh, this interaction between uh, me and Matt Miller yesterday and on Pakistan I want to read you a Voice of America headline they headlined the story Pakistan restricts internet access amid rare opposition online rally that's a recent article there was an, a virtual rally held by the opposition party because the opposition party leader is in is in jail and i'm wondering if the throttling of the internet amid an online rally makes a mockery of the, many, of the many times you've encouraged Pakistan to hold free and fair upcoming elections, are they free and fair if even a virtual ra- rally with the opposition leader in prison is being throttled nationally online. So
6: I cannot speak to the specific report you're referring to because I'm not familiar with those underlying details, mm-hmm. but we have always made clear that we think uh, access to the Internet is an important component in a free society, and we'll continue to to, to make that clear as a general proposition for Pakistan and every other country in the world.
8: Well, Asif Munir was just here, the Army, Army chief. Uh, was that raised with him? I, I didn't see any public comments made by State Department. I, and why, why was he meeting with civilians rather than... Only military.
6: So I'm not going to get into private diplomatic conversations, but I will say we, we engage a number of times with military leaders from other countries, just as military leaders from the United States engage with civilian officials for, for other countries. It's not in any way uh, unusual.
7: I like how he was like, we don't know anything about that Voice of America right. stuff. <laughs> Voice, Voice of America.
6: Of America. <laughs> let's put that
8: up here. And I, I used Voice of America uh, for a reason. You know, this is the, uh, you know, basically, this is the government-run propaganda um, arm. And so Voice of America reporting that Pakistan restricts internet access amid rare opposition online rally. Uh, so this, like, like, I, like I asked there, the army chief, uh, Asif Munir, it's not just a random kind of military official. You know, he's, he's the guy who is understood to have um, uh, orchestrated, you know, Imran Khan's removal and is the, the power behind the fake you know, civilian throne that, that is that is remaining, and a lot of people in Pakistan were kind of stunned to see him meeting with civilian officials over here because that that grants him the kind of gravitas of a civilian leader. When they when if you are trying to stand up for democracy, you would say no. Like the the military should be meeting with the military, uh, and by allowing him to meet with Blinken or to allowing him to meet um, with top civilian officials. Uh, only then kind of validates all the crackdown that's going on. Mm. It says that you're kind of recognizing this as, as legitimate. And the fact that they were willing to take down the Internet to stop an opposition rally while the army chief was here in the United States um, shows that they feel pretty confident um, that they have full U.S. backing for, for this crackdown. And so the U.S. is going to basically annihilate democracy in, in Pakistan a country of two hundred fifty million people, which is going to leave no real mechanism to work out the country's internal contradictions, and the U.S. better know what it's doing, um, it, what, what, breaking this, breaking these eggs.
7: I was going to say, right? Yeah, at least we're aiding uh, the dissolution yeah. of yes. And, and you know, it reminds me we had um, we, we had a conversation about. New, new reporting on Patrice Lumumba um, and the what, what happened in the Congo mm-hmm. uh, in the mid uh, the middle of the 20th century. And you mentioned earlier in the show that it's getting hard for the United States to look at countries like Pakistan and talk about their elected democratic mm-hmm. representatives uh, with a straight face. And obviously, you know, that's you, th- there have been contradictions in our public and and private sort of dealings with uh, similar issues for decades. But you mentioned earlier in the show that we were talking about the Supreme Court ruling in Colorado, the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling 4-3 against Donald Trump, which is now going to the Supreme Court here in D.C. Uh, I could really see... (laughs) <laughs> like this same scenario playing out here. And the big picture takeaway for me is that the the CIA and the American sort of intelligence apparatus, the State Department, are getting so much more comfortable um, doing what they used to do in private, in public, uh, the, with like less shame. Uh, To all of it that like it's it's almost a a boast a point to boast about uh, when you do this stuff like when you take down Donald Trump's Twitter account after being pressured uh, by you know people in the public and private sectors um, like Imran Khan gets his his virtual rally throttled in Pakistan. Donald Trump gets his whole Twitter account throttled for for years. Um, It's sort of just like this control mentality. Everyone's getting more comfortable and almost, in fact, uh, proud and pressured to exercise those powers.
8: And I think it would be fair to say, maybe Erdogan in competition, that Mm. uh, uh, Imran Khan would be the most popular Muslim elected official in the world. And to have him uh, jailed during the Israel-Gaza uh, war, I, I think, is is uh, is unfortunate for our the, for the public debate because you 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 know he'd be a real voice that that the world would be listening to um, on this question. Uh, but let's turn to 170 sad sacks who may have their <laughs> names released as part of the ongoing uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, legal situation. Uh, this is kind of exciting. There's a judge uh, ruling that she's going to unseal the names of 170 people associated uh, with Epstein. She's giving them, fortunately, two weeks to appeal this individually. <laughs> so we might not get them when we expect because I would imagine if somebody's name is on this list, uh, they're, they're going to try to take the opportunity yeah. to appeal that and keep their, <laughs> keep their name hidden. Uh, so what do we got here?
7: Right, so more than 170 people, the New York Post says, with ties to Jeffrey Epstein, including ex-employees and victims are in store for an uncomfortable start to the new year. Now, let's put a pin in that question about victims because we're not just talking about uh, potential ex-employees. Their names are set to be dredged up in a trove of court documents to be unsealed in the coming weeks, the Post adds. Manhattan federal judge Loretta Preska on Monday ordered the release of the long-sealed documents in a since-settled defamation lawsuit that Epstein accuser Virginia Giuffre brought against the convicted pedophiles Madam Gillian Maxwell back in 2015. So this is one of the Jafray cases. Under the ruling, dozens of individuals who have been previously referred to as Jane Doe's or John Doe's in various court filings linked to the suit will likely be identified publicly when the materials tied to them are unsealed in full. So the judge has given them, as Ryan said, 14 days to appeal the decision according to the order that was released early this week. So that would put us uh, in early January, sometime around like January 1st, actually. Basically, have a Merry Christmas everyone. <laughs> uh, several people who are likely to be ID'd in the unsealed papers have previously spoken out in media interviews about their working relationships with the convicted pedophile or how they were abused by him over the, year, over the years, according to the ruling. So what that's saying is there's some of this is already going to be public. And remember also that some of this could be victims. So as tempting as it is to kind of do a victory lap and, uh, you know, have, have uh, you know, some optimism that people will be uh, at least brought to public attention going forward they do have two weeks to appeal, and some of them, uh, again, may be victims. So that's not a sort of pleasant situation for a lot of people going forward. And this is a Jeffrey defamation suit, and that's where the impetus for actually uh, releasing some of these names comes in. When you're litigating the question of defamation, you can understand uh, why that would be relevant. Now, Ryan, uh, Representative uh, Tim Burchett went on Newsmax. And actually made an interesting point that I saw described in Mediaite as a, quote, conspiracy theory about members of Congress. uh, Conspiracy.
8: I mean, I'm open to any conspiracy theory around what is clearly a conspiracy. Right.
7: So Let's hear the theories. Yes. Let's let's play this clip.
5: What you have seen so many times, my dear friend, Marsha Blackburn, I thought she was snubbed. That's why I got involved with it. She can handle her own. But when the Democrat controlled Senate did that, I, I went to Chairman Comer. In the republican-controlled house and I said we need to we need to fix this this is wrong and too many of my colleagues I'm afraid are compromised uh, in this area for whatever reason somebody's whispered in their ear said hey you don't want something to come out on something else you better keep your mouth shut on this and that's exactly what they've done and um, and it continues to go whether it's the honey pot that the Russians used to use or something worse I don't know but but it's clearly you see that up and down the line, you see good conservatives vote for liberal policies, and frankly, you see some liberals occasionally that will vote for something else. So obviously, the um, the Congress has been compromised, and this continues on through the White House, through the Justice Department. It's a uh, the trash can is very deep. It's not a it's not mm-hmm. it not a swamp. It's an open sewer.
7: Amen,
8: brother. right, and, right so. Go ahead.
7: Well, I was just going to say, notice there he's actually also pointing out that it, uh, Democrats will vote for conservative things, meaning conservatives are pressuring Democrats over Epstein compromises, basically. That this is blackmail that's used not just in one and direction. Vice versa. Right. Exactly, in both directions.
8: And so if you're thinking about how uh, crazy that conspiracy theory might be, think about the things that we do know. Like, it seems pretty well confirmed. That uh, Epstein was some type of an intelligence asset. Mm-hmm. We know for certain all kinds of like wild sex stuff was going on in his, like on his plane, in his, in his mansion in Manhattan, on his island. We also know for certain uh, that he, the whole place was wired up. Yep. Like cameras, audio, everywhere. You put those three <laughs> things together, you already uh, can draw some reasonable conclusions. We also know. Um, that the that the FBI um, after his arrest walked out of his mansion um, with CDs that were in a safe that had name of famous person mm-hmm. and age and then age of girl mm-hmm. like on the CD
7: mm-hmm.
8: like that was reported at the time. Mm-hmm. Those CDs were never. Where are those CDs? Like, presumably who's, the who's,
7: FBI has them.
8: Who is, yeah, yeah exactly. Where are they? Like, that is an en- enormous number of investigative leads if this was on the up and up and somebody was actually following this. Because it, it, that seems like Epstein's blackmail that he had on the entire world.
7: Yeah.
8: Uh, which now would be in the hands of whoever walked out of that mansion uh, with, with that blackmail. Mm-hmm. The fact that we haven't seen those, a single one of those prosecutions Single, single investigation into those really leaves what Burchett is saying as like the most logical explanation at this point.
7: It's a conspiracy theory.
8: Give me a better explanation.
7: It would be a conspiracy theory to suggest (sighs) that members of Congress are somehow not compromised uh, in the Epstein investigation. And what he's saying, by the way, wasn't just that members of Congress might have been on the Lolita Express or had relationships with Jeffrey Epstein. No, what he's saying is that they have powerful people that maybe are uh, donors, that maybe are in their ear, that maybe are other members of Congress or in the entire Intelligence community that pressure them right. to take certain decisions. And he was referring to Marsha Blackburn, who actually tried to subpoena the estate. She was, she was using this in a kind of tit for tat with Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, uh, who Dick Durbin and other people in judiciary were trying to pressure for more information mm-hmm. about uh, their different potential conflicts of interest and, and all of that. Marsha Blackburn said okay, we're gonna subpoena Jeffrey Epstein flight logs. That goes nowhere, uh, and that's what Burchett is referencing. And it is interesting, because again, you could subpoena the estate of Jeffrey Epstein for the flight logs, for that information, in a number of different ways. You could, Congress, if they wanted to know more information about Jeffrey Epstein, uh, and they had consensus on wanting to know more information about what was going on with Jeffrey Epstein, they would. Right. Uh, they could use these mechanisms. They're choosing not to. And Bertrand's point. It would again. It would be a conspiracy to suggest that what he's saying is untrue.
8: And his point was not. If you listen carefully to what he was saying, his point was not that every member of Congress is caught up in the Epstein scandal. What What he was saying is that people have come to them and said, "You've got your own skeletons mm-hmm. in the closet." Mm-hmm. And yep. so, if you go here, other people are going to go there. Right. And so, let's just leave it all alone.
7: Yeah. Don't touch it. Yeah,
8: every, let's Keep those skeletons there. Keep those skeletons there. And we'll all, we'll all just keep it moving forward.
7: Right. Well, I'll be happy yeah. if, if nobody picks at this scab. And so with these 170 names set to come We should out,
8: ask uh, a Representative Good about that later today.
7: I think is a, f- a Freedom yeah. Caucus guy. I think, yeah. The- Which is
8: absurd that we don't know who's in the Freedom Caucus. <laughs> we, we cannot let Good leave without a list.
7: <laughs> I asked Ryan about like bar this. The, bar the door. Ryan was on Federalist Radio Hour this week, and I asked him about the differences between the squad. Like, the squad has, we actually know who's in the squad. Yeah. That's a completely different thing with the Freedom
8: Caucus. <laughs> it guards their membership yeah. very secretly. Like the Masonic Caucus over here. Get yeah. out of here.
7: Their Masonic Lodge used to be uh, Tortilla Costa since shuttered Mexican restaurant yeah. <laughs> on the corners of, like, First and C. Uh, but the, the, the 14 days between Monday and when, these names are set to be released. Uh, I think to Birchett's point, Ryan, and to the point you made at the very beginning of this segment, we'll see. We'll see what happens with these 170 names. I think obviously important to remember that uh, victims are among the potential names that would be uh, exposed, revealed in this defamation lawsuit. Um, but- Which, and
8: they should obviously have the opportunity to not have, like, it should be up to them whether or not they want their names to come forward. Right. Uh, the dudes on that list, not so much.
7: No. Uh, let's uh mention them all, as yeah. Bethany Frankel would say. There you go. Mention it all. <laughs>
0: Names. <laughs> he loves the Names. <laughs> Name Names. Name
8: them. Name them. Name them.
0: <laughs> hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old Oh, yeah.
7: Tucker Carlson was on Tim Pool's podcast this week and had uh, a very uh, tough, brutal criticism, really, for Ron DeSantis. Over, I mean, in general, it was a criticism of uh, DeSantis's kind of online army of defenders and then became a criticism of DeSantis's Ukraine policy. Let's roll the clip.
2: You really get the sense that Ron DeSantis, who I liked as governor, uh, the people who represent him online are the nastiest the stupidest and the most zero sum people I've ever seen in my life. And I don't think that reflects him, but it's like, this is kind of small ball. And by the way, these purported conservatives, Ron DeSantis changed his view and I like him. Okay, I think he's been a good governor. I just wanna be clear about that. I know him personally, I like him. But his donor, Ken Griffin, told him to change his view on Ukraine from it's a regional Mm -hmm. conflict we shouldn't get involved in to it's a super important thing. We should send more money. One donor got him to change his view. And all these so-called conservatives are supporting that. Like, it's the most important thing ever. I, like, who are these people and what is their problem? Like, what is going on with them?
8: First of all, do we have a name for them? How about the D-Hive? <laughs> the like, D-Hive? That's so bad. The D-Hive. No. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> no. these these DeSantis, uh, the D-Hive. Like, who are, like, t- Twitter is good enough at, like, Bifurcating ecosystems that I don't actually encounter a lot of the deehive yes um but i I am aware of their existence <laughs> the I can faintly hear their buzzing I,
7: I'm rejecting <laughs> the d um just the- Right away, there's I'm, I will not play ball with that, but I will say it has been a really big point of contention, actually, on in conservative circles that DeSantis has this uh, hardened kind of Twitter army. Ronnie Bros. The, okay, there we go, Ronnie Bros. That is capital V O very online, and uh, in in ways that there's a similar kind of parallel in Trump circles and the very online Trump army and the very online DeSantis army um, get just engaged in these silly and often trivial and irrelevant um, and often sort of, I would say, detached, you know, kind of—they're they're out of the—in in bubbles, basically, in a Twitter bubble um, over these these silly fights. Sometimes you see them arguing over just, like, random personal beefs that go back a year um, in Twitter relationships. And I, I it's not surprising at all that Tucker would say that, because that's something you hear even from people who are favorable to DeSantis privately, is that the online presence is grating, and it sort of is dragged into the mud in the same way the Trump online army drags into the mud, and that's supposed to— be different with DeSantis, blah, blah, blah. His point, though, about... he's he's clearly talking about Ken Griffin Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to DeSantis on Ukraine. And what happened in the spring is that DeSantis at one point had referred to what's happening in Ukraine as a, quote, territorial dispute. Now, this ruffled the feathers of people like Ken Griffin, who, according to the New York Times, met with DeSantis and expressed his displeasure. Now, Ken Griffin gave some $5 million to DeSantis' re-election campaign uh, just, like, a couple of
8: years ago. The gubernatorial one.
7: Yeah, the gubernatorial re-election campaign uh, a couple of years ago he has not given a dime um that i'm aware of at least in this cycle and that's uh before we started taping ryan you made a great point like let's all live like a billionaire who doesn't even have to give money to have so much
8: money people are going to meet with you and and change their uh, positions just based on the potential that you could spend
7: right and he 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 has since seems to cool on DeSantis as many people on Wall Street seem to have cooled on DeSantis over, uh, and I think this is very interesting, uh, cultural issues. I think, I know we've actually talked about this before. That you know, for the for the billionaires, that's sort of the the bottom line. Like they will go to the mat for uh, low taxes and less regulation. But once you start actually pushing like conservative cultural priorities, uh, different question. So that's what we've seen with people like Ken Griffin. Now, whether Ken Griffin's meeting with Ron DeSantis actually uh, made him take back, he 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 said some stuff about the territorial dispute thing. Right, and he
8: got beaten up uh, kind of broadly, so it could have been some of that pressure.
7: Yeah, and I think, actually, when I was looking at the timeline, I don't necessarily know that that adds up. It's possible that there was something that Ken Griffin, and Tucker could be referring to somebody that's not publicly available, that Ken Griffin did have a call with Ron DeSantis right away after he said that, and Ron DeSantis came out and clarified the territorial dispute comics. That is what happened, but we don't know that Ken Griffin had anything to do with that. Um, Presumably, there are a lot of donors that might be upset by that, Um, even though it is at this point, at least very clearly, a territorial dispute. It's not the sort of civilizational dispute that the Ann Apple bombs of the world would have you say. And that's sort of where Tucker's taking issue with DeSantis on Ukraine. Um, But I, I mean, I don't think DeSantis is entirely objectionable in Ukraine, unless your objection is that you just don't know how he would treat the conflict as president. Right. right. Is he going to be McCarthy-esque and say no blank check or is he going to be McConnell-esque um, when he gets into office? I actually don't know that that's something we can know about any Republican politician at this point uh, because the pressures once you get into office here in D.C. Uh, from the Pentagon and uh, lobbyists, the military industrial complex are so strong.
8: And I did see kind of sort of re- uh, relevant to this. I saw him uh, getting beaten up last night on conservative Twitter for being very slow with a statement about um, Trump um getting booted off the Colorado ballot, you know you, you Vivek immediately comes out and says, "Yeah, uh we should all withdraw our names from the Colorado ballot if they're going to try to uh, do this you know and and you've got this anticipation like what is what is DeSantis going to say how hows he going to respond to this?" And it seemed like he was just kind of waiting to see how it would it would play out. Um, which seems to be part of the kind of cautiousness and, and politicianiness that people are get that people are starting to sense from him yeah in in a way that undermines you know what people want with this kind of trumpy, just like you know, spit it out and say the uh, lunatic left, biden marxists are trying to like you know put all their people and put all their opponents in prison or whatever.
7: Yeah, and we can put this next element up on the screen. Uh, This is the the national RCP average poll. I was thinking about this yesterday. So I went and looked at the RCP average over time. um, And it's kind of ridiculous even to be talking about Trump versus DeSantis on Ukraine in the primary because uh, Donald Trump is absolutely crushing Ron DeSantis in every state. The only uh, path forward, I mean, if if you're listening to this and not watching it on your screen, there's just a yawning gap that starts- a
8: crocodile. Uh, yeah,
7: it does look like a crocodile. It <laughs> starts around March. And remember, that's about when Ron DeSantis is, is announcing his campaign late spring. Um, and it, it has going, been going in the wrong direction for Ron DeSantis ever since and up for Donald Trump in the national polling average ever since. Let's put Iowa up on the screen. This is the next element. Right. Trump um, pushing
8: 63. Right, nationally to like 20 for everybody else or less.
7: Just uh, double, double, double double digits. Uh, Just not even close nationally, Uh, and not even close to the point where you could do a Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar thing and consolidate behind another candidate. Now, in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire, in theory, in theory, you could try to do that. Donald Trump is just above 50%, but just above 50% is a huge margin. It means he's up by 32, an average, uh, in, in the, the RCP polling average, he's up by 32 points to DeSantis, who, according to these polls, has sort of been steadily climbing, but steadily climbing to a point that is still lower than where he was early in his campaign around June. Nikki Haley is sort of steadily climbing, too, but below DeSantis. This is New Hampshire. Uh, you see Donald Trump just— And one,
8: one point on Iowa? Yeah. Before we go to that, people have to remember, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Democratic caucuses, if you don't get 15%, you have to then, in a precinct, your supporters then have to go vote for somebody else mm-hmm. or not vote at all. Mm-hmm. Uh- so you've got a ton of people that are under 15% there, as you know, Vivek, Ramaswamy's people, for instance, would then, they'd all walk across the gym and go join with Trump's people. Yeah, uh, Half of, um, you know, a lot of these other people would, are probably their second choice as Trump. Which then pushes him, you know, well into the sixties, seventies.
7: Right. The the Nikki Haley people aren't crossing over to yeah. Right,
8: but so the DeSantis people you know, half of them might cross over.
7: Totally. Yeah, yeah, 100%.
8: And Even though, as much as they hate each other online, like the actual supporters.
7: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's right. again, that's it's totally detached from the reality of how sort of not on Twitter people are experiencing this in most of the countries. Not on Twitter, at least on a daily basis. you were saying New Hampshire? Yeah, so New Hampshire, you see Nikki Haley kind of closing the gap a little bit. This is in South Carolina. You also see uh, Trump's margin. He's at he's up by 29.6 points. Um, he was up at different points, according to these polling averages, 35, 34. So maybe Maybe that's maybe that's dipping a little bit. There isn't a ton of good polling out of South Carolina yet. Uh, but the bottom line is even Nikki Haley climbing above DeSantis in New Hampshire and even Trump dipping by a couple of points in South Carolina still has him up by 30 points. This is not a race. Right. And that's
8: her home state, so what more can she do?
7: It's her home state. Unless the polling is dramatically off, which is something Vivek Ramaswamy told me that on Federalist Radio Hour last week that he thinks the polling is very off in Iowa. Uh, I, it seems plausible given that how Cuz he's how, only at
8: 5 and he's right. he's like I'm feeling good.
7: So but if the polling is really off, maybe he's at 50, maybe he's actually at 15. Uh maybe he's no. Hit twenty. He, the bottom line is Donald Trump is still the a clear favorite to the point where if this were anybody else, we would say this is not a race at all. This primary is a laughing stock. Um, and, and so that's all that is to say the sort of tit for tat DeSantis versus Trump has some interesting kind of broad ideological uh, relevancy for the conservative movement as they're kind of trying to figure out where they go. But in terms of this primary, the, the material reality this is not a competition right now.
8: Yeah.
7: All right. Well, we're going to transition into an interview now with the leader of the Freedom Caucus, Representative Bob Good. Is of he allowed Virginia. to admit that? That he's the leader of the Freedom Caucus? Yeah. Yes, because he was secret voted. We you can yeah. ask about that actually. Yeah. <laughs> right, so we'll be back with Representative Good right after this.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Us. Oh, yeah.
7: We're excited to be joined now by Representative Bob Good of Virginia, who was recently elected as the leader of the Freedom Caucus, which has a huge amount of leverage, obviously, going into the new year as the House resumes its business in the new year. So, Congressman, thank you so much for joining
9: us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
7: I want to start with that first question. I mean, we still have the one-person motion to vacate. That rule is still in place, which is obviously a huge piece of leverage that the Freedom Caucus has over Mike Johnson. Uh, you know, the, you were certainly part of uh, how that was used against uh, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Going forward, what is the red line for the Freedom Caucus on Ukraine with Mike Johnson? Have you are, are you in conversation? Are you in contact with Mike Johnson? And what is the red line for you on Ukraine on the border as Mike Johnson? to negotiate uh, with House
9: Democrats and Mitch McConnell on the Senate side? Well, if I may, just since you mentioned the motion to vacate, you know, that's something that's been in place for the better part of 200 years, going back to the Thomas Jefferson days until Nancy Pelosi changed it. When we were able to negotiate or leverage uh, support for the Speaker for a new House rules package, a new Republican conference rules package that would restore regular order and empower individual members instead of the elites controlling it. Part of that was to restore that accountability measure that a Speaker serves at the pleasure of 218 members. So frankly, that is restored uh, to empower all members to hold the Speaker accountable. Even the the minority can try to utilize that. Uh, and, and every Speaker serves again at the pleasure of 218 members. You know, one would hope that we would never reach a point where we'd have to do that again. But I will just point out, I think we're in unprecedented times as a country. Uh, We've never had this level of debt. We've never had this level of uh, a a monthly deficit. We've never had our credit downgraded twice like it has been this past year. We've never had the debt to GDP. We've got 40-year high inflation, 20-year high interest rates. Then you've got the border invasion. I mean, we've never had a president intentionally harm the country the way this president is with facilitating this border invasion. You've got unprecedented trampling on our constitutional freedoms and liberties with FISA surveillance. Uh, There's so many crises, the weakening of our military, the war on American energy, affordable, reliable energy, the climate, environmentalism, extremism. So like no time before, must we stand up and deliver for the American people and validate the faith and trust they placed in us when they gave us the majority a year ago. And so far we failed to do that. That's why some of us are willing to do whatever it takes to try to bring transformational change to Congress. That said, you asked specifically about Ukraine. Uh, Yes, we're in regular contact with the speaker, and certainly I've had uh, conversations with him and uh, interaction with him to a greater degree since I was elected as the incoming chairman of the Freedom Caucus. But his position is, and I think uh, will remain, and we're certainly encouraging him to that effect, that uh, Ukraine is dead on arrival. Support for Ukraine is dead on arrival in the House until if and when Ah, uh, the Senate passes hr two, our outstanding strong border security bill that the House passed months ago, and the President signs it into law. And not until we have that done and we begin to see measurable, metrics, demonstrated uh, performance on securing our border, would we even talk about support for Ukraine? And if that was to even be considered, it must be paid for, which is not, which is unprecedented. We don't pay for supplementals in this town. It must be paid for an offset. It must have accountability, transparency. Uh, it must have a strategy attached to it for a defined limit to U.S. involvement. All of those things to even be considered. I'm unlikely to support it ir- irrespective of those things, but it can't be brought to the floor of the House. We can't trade our border security uh, in, in a phony way, a a, a, a a phony version that comes out of the Senate that pretends to secure the border. We already have the good legislation. The Senate must sign it, uh, pass it rather. The president must sign it. It must become law. It must be enforced. And by a lawless administration who, to this point, is breaking our laws and purposefully facilitating this border evasion that is doing irreparable harm to the country.
7: So is that a motion? Would you move to vacate Mike Johnson if he plays ball with McConnell and Democrats on Ukraine over the border?
9: Well, similar quick answers. We're not trying to obviously vacate our speaker. I, I believe he's a conservative. I believe he's an honest guy. I believe that he loves the country. I believe that he wants to do the right thing. That said, this is not personal. It wasn't personal with the previous speaker. It's not personal with this speaker. This is performance-based. And I will just note that I got asked for months from January to September about motion to vacate with the previous speaker. And I said, hey, we're focused on trying to bring change. We're trying to advance conservative policy. We're trying to influence the conference to stand up and deliver for the American people. We're not just willfully, excuse me, flippantly or cavalierly just flowing around threats to motion to vacate. I didn't talk about that until we got to the point when it happened, I didn't talk about that. And certainly, and that's not an inference that, hey, that we're in the same place. The current speaker inherited a very difficult situation. There's a reason why we have a new speaker. And, you know, he's we put him in in the fourth quarter when we're down 35 nothing, and we've lost 10 games in a row. That's the Republican Party that's failed to deliver for the American people. That's failed to show the demonstrated willingness to fight and, and, and to draw and enforce red lines that we're gonna, again, we're gonna stand and fight for the American people instead of caving and surrendering as we have done for the last uh, 30 years, I would suggest. Uh, So that's what we're working is to try to help the speaker to get the conference to stand behind him and be willing to have a fight over funding this government and cutting uh, spending year over year, to be willing to have a fight uh, to reform FISA surveillance so we don't continue to trample on the constitutional freedoms and rights of the American citizens To continue to have a fight or be willing to have a fight to secure the border. What are we willing to do or what are we prepared to do to, to, to achieve that? And then to continue to fight to keep Israel aid as a standalone package that's paid for uh, that uh, that that isn't hijacked, uh, utilized to you know to hijack support for Israel uh, in tying it to Ukraine. Uh, that again, we will not consider aid to Ukraine until this border is secure. Not not talked about being secure, not promised to be secure, but actually is secure. So that's where we are We're trying to influence the right things and trying to work with our speaker when he's right. Uh, and encourage him to do the right things, uh, but then to challenge him when he's wrong, uh, when we, we don't think he's doing the right thing. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the demonstration of that is we were adamantly opposed to continuing resolution that passed, we were adamantly opposed to the NDAA that didn't have the good policy reforms in it and was negotiated secretly in the back room between House and Senate leadership instead of a true conference committee and worse, attached the FISA surveillance extension without the necessary reforms to protect Americans. And mm-hmm. We we do
8: want to get into that uh, that FISA extension in, in a moment, but I'm curious why uh, does Israel aid deserve kind of a clean up or down vote, whereas Ukraine aid ought to get tied to HR two. What's the what's the difference there? It feels like we're talking war and peace. Each ought to get yeah. an up or down vote. Yeah,
9: great question. And I would just point out that what's, one of the many things that's wrong with Washington is that you you, you try to avoid tough. Too often we've tried to avoid tough votes and protect members from taking controversial votes and being on record for what they stand for or against. So you package things together that aren't necessarily related. So in other words, it's like, okay, it's like the farm bill. The farm bill is 75% a welfare bill, but you know what, we don't, don't vote against farmers you gotta vote for the welfare package. Or if you're a Democrat who wants the welfare package, then we sort of use that to get you to vote for the farmers instead of having both of them separated and stand alone on their own merits or lack thereof so we can reform and improve both of those instead of putting them together. Same thing with, okay, Ukraine aid has nothing to do with Israel aid. Uh, or nothing to do with humanitarian assistance for Hamas or nothing to do with Taiwan or nothing to do with disaster relief. This $110 billion package that the president and the Senate want us to pass together. So the speaker was right, and we certainly encourage him to do that shortly after becoming speaker because the American people and the Congress overwhelmingly support aid to our what I would consider one of our top two or three allies in the world, Israel. And for a number of reasons, Americans and the Congress overwhelmingly supports that. So let's consider Israel Israeli aid without controversy in and of itself on its own merits. And it passed with every Republican, I think, except one in the House and 12 Democrats. It was paid for by cutting Biden's IRS expansion because Israel is not— uh, uh, bankrupt as a country, they are not uh, fiscally unstable like we are as a country. They don't have 34 trillion in national debt. So we ought not to borrow from our kids and our grandkids. We can pay for it by reducing Biden's IRS expansion, which is breaking the mold of borrowing more and exacerbating our debt situation for a supplemental, which is by by design, it's never paid for. Right, But we real quick, to- though,
8: do- doesn't that increase the deficit uh, to cut cut back on tax enforcement?
9: No, it doesn't, because uh, you've got, again, Biden's trying to spend $80 billion to hire 87,000 new IRS agents to go after, harass, intimidate, threaten uh, regular income Americans who are audited at five times right, But the that stuff of the works, like people- right? The American people don't need a more oppressive— uh, more powerful IRS going after them, especially when the IRS has been demonstrated, like many of our federal agencies, to be political in its nature on who it goes after and who it doesn't. And again, we're bankrupt, so we don't, we can't afford an expansion of the IRS. Uh, the American people aren't paying too much in taxes. The government is spending far too much. We've got a spending problem. We don't have a revenue problem in this country.
7: So, one thing I wanted to ask about is the comments Marjorie Taylor Greene made to CNN. And the only reason I'm asking about it is because, again, just to emphasize, the Freedom Caucus has a huge amount of leverage going forward in the new year, in the new Congress. And, you know, from the perspective of a conservative, we'll, we'll hopefully be calling some shots going forward. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is claiming that your chairmanship, your your impending chairmanship of Freedom Caucus, is hurting fundraising, that your endorsement, uh, of DeSantis over Donald Trump has hurt unity in the Freedom Caucus, et cetera, et cetera, going forward. Is there any truth to any of that? And is it true that that sort of Trump-DeSantis divide um, and potential fundraising issues are, Hurting the Freedom Caucus's ability to sort of work together as one unit that's able to call shots kind of cohesively uh, with all the leverage that it has in the new year and a, a very slim margin of, uh, of a majority in the House and the motion to vacate back in place.
9: That's a long question. Let me, let me take a stab <laughs> at it. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has demonstrated that she'll uh, say anything to smear or attack or lie about those to whom she has a personal vendetta or a grievance against. Marjorie Taylor Greene showed herself to be the fraud that she is uh, when she uh, unconditionally supported the former speaker a a year ago. And then, of course, she got lots of blowback against her because she had positioned herself as a brand of somehow anti-establishment and a change agent in Washington. Then she unconditionally supported the former speaker. That was obviously very unpopular with her base. Uh, She then smeared and lied against, uh, slide against those of us who were fighting to change uh, the, or to prevent the former speaker from getting elected back in January. She was then subsequently kicked out of the Freedom Caucus because of her behavior. So she knows very little about the Freedom Caucus. She is an island to herself now. She was kind of a, a useful idiot at the hands of, of this former speaker back in January to try to help him become speaker. Now she's kind of isolated herself. She has no support among the membership and so she lies and smears and attacks others. The freedom caucus board overwhelmingly elected me as chairman The general membership overwhelmingly elected me as chairman uh, we uh, as a freedom caucus consider continue to fight for the uh, the conservative principles uh, that the Republican party is supposed to stand upon. We are the anchor, the conservative conscience of the Republican majority in the house. Uh, we're willing to challenge our own leadership when we're wrong because we don't work for them. we work for our constituents and those who elected us.
8: Did, did she have any support inside the Freedom Caucus during that during that debate? I don't quite know how the Freedom Caucus internal <laughs> stuff works, but was there anybody that was yeah, I, I like, no, she's the,
9: great? I won't get into the internal dynamics of it. I'll just say that there was an overwhelming decision to uh, remove her from the Freedom Caucus, and uh, and I, I guess she's got an axe to grind as a result of that. Uh,
8: going back to the, uh, the FISA fight uh, that you talked about earlier, uh, there was some hope that there would be a kind of progressive caucus, freedom caucus alignment on on this issue that would be able to kind of roll back some of these uh, surveillance authorities. You guys seem to get steamrolled at the very end and and as the NDAA was going through the house, I think you needed, what, 146 votes to be able to stop it from getting the two-thirds majority to go through to kind of force uh, the, the spymasters back to the table to negotiate the surveillance authorities. You guys fell short by a couple dozen votes. Um, what, what went wrong and what can the Progressive Freedom Caucus Coalition, if it exists, do differently when this fight comes back in the spring?
9: Well, the American people don't want FISA extended without the reforms to protect them. Uh, we can't have warrantless searches of U.S. citizens uh, where you don't have to go before a judge with probable cause and get a uh, uh, permission, if you will, validation for the reason to surveil or spy upon U.S. citizens. So they want us to reform FISA. they don't want it extended without that. It was it was terribly disappointing that uh, we would do that. That we would attach it to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which didn't didn't have the policy changes that we had voted for in the House last summer. It, it frankly uh, uh, extended the uh, the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer vision for the military. Uh, And and it was it it was NDA that that we overwhelmingly rejected from a Freedom Caucus standpoint. It it, it received four to one support from Democrats, two to one support by Republicans. And so it ultimately passed. Uh, But I think it was a mistake. And I think it was a mistake to extend visa surveillance. Uh, It's extended until April. Uh, We'll have another crack at that to bring reforms into place uh, early in the new year. And I certainly hope that we will do that.
8: And you, we talked about uh, Israel and its funding for Israel earlier uh, in this interview, and I, I wanted to ask you why it, why it is, and I'm, I'm curious, just from, from from the left, it seems like the America First kind of movement that has really surged over the last several years and has influenced the way that the right has uh, kind of interacted with Ukraine funding and, and support for the Ukraine war doesn't seem to translate um, when it comes to Israel. Like what... Why Why is that?
9: Well, Israel has long been a historic ally of the United States, certainly in the, uh, what, 75 or years so since Israel became a nation in 1948. Uh, Israel is a key ally. It's the only true democracy in the Middle East. It is surrounded by nations who want to destroy it and push it into the sea. Uh, Israel has every right to defend itself, do whatever is necessary to defend its national sovereignty. It's a key U.S. ally. Uh, and again, it's overwhelming support by uh, in the Congress and among the country. And so uh, I believe, uh, similar to the United Kingdom, it's one of our tr- true few real genuine allies that stand with us through thick and thin and we all stand with Israel. And ye-
8: yesterday, I, uh, and we played this clip earlier in the show, I was at the uh, State Department briefing and I, and I asked the State Department spokesperson, Matt Miller, about comments made uh, by the Pope just recently. Uh, where he was talking about the the IDF attack on the Catholic Church in Gaza, and he described it as it's it's terrorism. Uh, and I, I'm curious, from your perspective, what does it say about kind of the, the the U.S. role on the international stage and its its alliance with Israel, which you've said one of our one of our closest allies. If even the Pope is willing to describe, uh, you know, what we are supporting in Gaza as as terrorism, or in, one in, incident yeah that 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 incident and is there a point at which members of the freedom caucus start to say you know this is actually harming our national interests?
9: Well, I didn't see those comments, and I'm not familiar with what you're referring to specifically as it relates to the Pope. however, I believe that Israel does its best uh the best that it can in a wartime situation to protect Civilian casualties and to protect innocent victims, uh, there is a will. There's a reason why they were willing to have that pause, uh, temporary pause in operations to try to, from a humanitarian standpoint. But they're dealing with an enemy that uh, has said they do not have the right to exist and is willing to kill children, to burn children alive, to rape and kill women, uh, to kill senior citizens, to put people in ovens, to cut off their heads. Uh, th- this is an unbelievable evil that they have to defeat. And frankly, it's an evil that's willing to use schools and mosques and churches and hospitals and so forth to shield their military operations, to use their own citizens, uh, Palestinian citizens, uh, individuals as, as uh Shields against uh, what they're doing, and and to, so Israel's in a tough situation, obviously. But Israel needs to do whatever is necessary to defend itself and to prevent something like this that happened on October seven from happening again in their country.
7: I have w- I have one more question, um, sort of from a broader thirty thousand foot view. Uh, why is it? You know, you've you've seen a lot of this up close, and I know a lot of average Republican voters who are outside of Washington, D.C., maybe in your district in Virginia, who look at what happens in Washington, who look at what happened with the NDAA, which was just shameful, but also shameful in that it was so typical of the way business works here in D.C. Why is it that so many elected Republicans in D.C. vote against their voters? Why is it that they are so willing over and over again to sort of put their priorities, the priorities of their lobbyists of special interests above what their constituents say they want, uh, and then they get to D.C. and do something contrary to that? You've seen it up close. What, what's your sort of perspective on why that
9: happens? There's an interesting dynamic in D.C. and in Washington, and I just say in, in elections generally, Democrats will run as moderates, and then when they get into office, they vote as radical leftist communists in lockstep. I mean, there's no difference between— They vote like Ryan. There's no difference between the way AOC votes, for example, and those— Democrats who claim to be moderates find me the daylight between them on anything substantive in Congress, and they're 99 percent lockstep. Republicans tend to run as conservatives, but then they get to D.C. and they often behave as moderates. It's a very different dynamic, and it it is contempt for seemingly uh, the voters, the grassroots, the base, uh, those who elect them. They get to Washington, sort of a "we know best" mentality. You don't understand how Washington works, and Republicans uh, seem to think that the way to the majority and the way to Uh, Winning in Washington is to moderate, to work with Democrats, to compromise, but they don't run on that, but that's what they do. And you've got about a third of Republicans uh, in the House, I would submit, who are willing to uh, fight for genuine conservative principles, to do what they said they would do, to buck their party leadership when it's wrong on something like the NDAA and the FISA extension. But unfortunately, you've got about two-thirds who are willing to do what leadership says to kind of... Just be a team player, no matter what the play call is, who really don't want to limit government or cut spending or make the tough choices or do the things that they run on. And unfortunately, that's reflected. And that certainly uh, makes it difficult for the American people to trust us uh, with leadership, with the majority, with the ability to govern uh, if we don't deliver on the things that we said we would do.
7: Representative Good, you have been so generous with your time. We went long because it was so interesting. But we thank you so much for coming and and talking to us a little bit about HFC's plans for the new year. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you.
9: Thank you. Great to be with you.
7: All right. That does it for us on today's edition of Counterpoints. We certainly hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. We'll see you back here in January. Don't forget to subscribe, get a premium subscription, maybe as a holiday gift to yourself.
8: There you go. Yeah, you (laughs) earned it.
7: All right, we'll see you all soon.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI.